Christina Kramer is a professor emerita at the University of Toronto, Canada. She has published numerous articles relating to Balkan linguistics and Macedonian grammar. She translated several novels from Macedonian including A Spare Life, Freud's Sister and Fear of Barbarians. She has held two grants from the National Endowment of the Arts and her translations have been included among notable works long listed for best translated work and a Loi Roth honorary mention. In this conversation she talks about her journey as a language learner her expertise in Macedonian, Bulgarian and Russian languages. She discusses her teaching career where she taught Russian, Macedonian and Slavic linguistics. She spoke about her translated work, her collaborative projects and the challenges she has faced with linguistic complexities. She spoke about her translation of Freud's Sister and the Fear of Barbarians. to buy her books you can use the link given in the show notes please share your feedback on this episode either on the spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes you can follow harshniyam podcast on spotify apple or search any of your favorite podcasting apps welcome christina so nice to have you with us Welcome to our podcast. Anil, it's a real pleasure to meet you. You seem to be knowing many languages, read, speak and even to translate. You have the even the expertise to translate in them. Uh when did this start this uh, love for language learning? When did it start? First I'd like to begin by correcting something. I actually am not the best language learner. I've studied many languages. I've taken courses in about 10 languages. But really my languages of expertise are really Macedonian first of all, Bulgarian and Russian. So I can read with a dictionary, I can read Spanish, I can read French, but I really mainly like to translate Macedonian because it's the language I know the best and I go there often enough that I feel my language is very fresh that I'm understanding what's happening in the language. As for when my love of languages started, I think really it didn't start until I was a university student. Fascinated by language, but nobody in my family really spoke another language. I had siblings who were living overseas and I could see that they were learning languages but that wasn't the spark. It was really being in university and falling in love with world literature. Oh, why this uh, special attraction towards the Slavic languages? I started studying Russian in high school because it was the era of the Cold War and I was very curious to try and understand the world through language. And so I was one of the very first high school Russian programs. but at the same time in high school i got very interested in the the novels of nikos kazantzakis the the crete the greek writer and i read everything i read all his novels i read his plays i read his travelogues so i my interest in the balkans was sparked very young and then when i went to university at that period i was studying russian and continuing to study spanish and folk dancing was very popular 
and Balkan folk dancing was especially popular. And so here I had this interest in the Balkans, and I was studying Russian, and suddenly I was learning songs that were in Macedonian and Bulgarian, and I was fascinated by the linguistic connections between them. And th that sort of the literature of Kazantzakis, the study of Russian for the geopolitical reasons, and then my interest in music and Balkan folklore kind of all came together. Please tell us about your teaching career. You had a very long and distinguished uh, teaching career. When I finished my PhD, my first teaching job was in Murray, Kentucky. And in Kentucky, I taught Russian and I taught Spanish. And I also taught a course called A Cultural Introduction to Language, which was introducing students to languages around the world and the way language interaction and social interaction. When I got hired by the University of Toronto in the late 1980s, I taught graduate classes in Slavic linguistics, which was what my PhD was in. And luckily, there happens to be a huge Macedonian community in Toronto. And they were interested in enabling me by donating some money to free up some of my time so I could teach Macedonian. So during my 30-whatever-year career here, I taught Russian, I taught Macedonian, I taught Slavic linguistics, and then I began developing some other classes that were of, of particular interest, particularly after the Yugoslav wars began in the 1990s. I got very interested in the socio and political aspects of language and identity and why the relationship between politics and language. And I developed a class called Language, Politics, and Identity which a number of my Balkan linguistic colleagues across North America were also developing. Like, And in that class, because at University of Toronto, it's important to know that more than 50% of our students don't have English as a first language. So when I have 50 students, in my the last time I ta taught the class, there were 40 different languages represented. And so while I began talking about language and language politics in the Slavic world, and the breakup of the language formerly known as Serbo-Croatian, we would start with French, the relationship of French and English in Canada, and the way laws were implemented to control the different domains in which a language was spoken. But then as I saw my students were from all over the world, I began to expand looking at uh, educational policies in India and the three language policy. And the ways in which students have a home language and a regional language and a state language, and the complexities of language interaction, the ways in which uh, the Hindi-Urdu situation looks very much like the Serbian-Croatian, the way languages can move together and languages can move apart, and what are the implications for that? And students loved the class, I loved teaching it, and one student said to me, after this class, I'll never see the world the same. That's a great compliment. That's a great compliment. Please introduce us to Macedonian language. It, it started through folklore and then in graduate school. By chance, I ended up at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where a young professor, Victor Friedman, was a Macedonian specialist who had also joined the become interested in the Balkans through folklore. And through his mentorship, first I went and studied in Bulgaria on a summer seminar. And then because his particular area is Macedonia, he 
got me on the uh, summer language program for the first time in 1978. And so beginning in 1978, I began going to Macedonia fairly regularly. Such a beautiful place. The language is so interesting because weirdly, I think for English speakers, Macedonian may be the easiest Slavic language. It has complexities where English has complexity. So it has a very complex verbal system, not always complicated like English, but it has a perfect tense. It has a past perfect. And then it's got some uniquely Balkan things, but the verbs are complex, but it has lost cases. So it's not a case language like Russian, like Bulgarian. It uses word order to word order and prepositions for case relations. You also authored a book on uh, Macedonian grammar, kind of you formulated Macedonian grammar. I, I love how you say I formulated it. No, the language was codified in the 1940s, building on certainly a centuries-long tradition of trying to codify the language. But what there really wasn't yet was a, a grammar for English speakers that taught students the four branches, the speaking, listening, writing, comprehension, but also the cultural context of Macedonian. And the Macedonian community in Toronto was so generous to me that I wanted there to be a book for the course that I was teaching. And so the book is very much anchored in my experience teaching Macedonian to students of Macedonian heritage in Toronto. And the grammar, the press originally thought that they'd sell 200 copies. They've sold thousands of copies as people around the world have been able to use the book. And that's just been a really lovely part of my career that I was able to do that. Please tell us about the contemporary literature and writing in Macedonian. So Macedonian is an interesting language because it has a very long uh, tradition going back to roots back in the medieval period, but the language wasn't codified until the 1940s. So before the 1940s, we have a, a very strong oral tradition. We have people experimenting in vernacular forms of writing. But in the 1940s, the language is codified, and that gives new impetus and social networks for the creation of literature. And the first poetry, the first novels, the first playwrights, it's all happening and percolating. And in contemporary Macedonia, there's just every genre you can imagine. You might not think of Macedonian and haiku in the same breath, but Vladimir Martinovsky, a young poet, writing haiku. You have Petr Andonovsky's novels that are pushing new themes. I'm, I've just translated his novel, which tentatively is called The Summer Without You, which is the first Macedonian novel to deal with homosexual themes. Gotze Smilevsky's novel about Freud's sister, breaking boundaries where Macedonian imaginary doesn't have to be set in Macedonia. So the places where Macedonian novels can go is now international. And there's science fiction happening. So I think there's just a lot of exciting things happening. Rumena Bujarovska, uh, my husband, translated into English, was widely read. And so Macedonian uh, poetry and literature is really participating, I think, in international currents in ways that it wasn't able to before. 
So when uh, did this transition from being a linguist to a translator happen? You say transition as if I was one thing and I became another thing. Um, I think it's more the mind meld because uh, I, I, I'm still both. Well, as an undergraduate, I was a comparative literature major, a Russian major, and a linguistics major. So I've never really known if I'm a language person or a linguistics person or a literature person. And I never thought I knew a language well enough to translate. And then in 2000, I began reading the Balkan saga, novels of the Balkan saga by Luan Starova. And I thought, if I ever translate, this is what I'll do. And in 2007, I was home, I was on leave, and I began translating my father's books. I spent five years translating it and the second of the Balkan saga, The Time of the Goats. And I loved the message of Starova's books, which was about Balkan unity and interethnic cooperation, rather than the constant Balkan conflict, which we kept hearing about. And I was mentored in my translation, in learning to translate by a number of people, but especially by Professor Madeline Levine, who was an award-winning Polish translator and should sit side by side with me. And so I felt I had a lot of really supportive mentoring and I wanted to amplify positive Macedonian voices. I wanted people, I wanted Macedonian literature to also have a life in English. And I was very lucky in 2012 when I was asked by Penguin Books to translate Freud's Sister by Gotze Smilevsky. And then later I was contacted to translate A Spare Life by Lydia Dimkowska. And so little by little, I was gaining experience. People were learning of my work and just some really fabulous opportunities came to me. So during COVID, I also began thinking that the novels I translate are this modern fiction and I wanted to understand more about what people were writing, how translators are translating. So I began trying to read novels from a hundred different countries. So I'm up to I'm up to about 90 and uh, it's just been a wonderful project thinking about young writers, young translators, not only young writers, some of them have been historical works, but in many of these novels, we're seeing, I just read a, a, a novel by a Canadian Vietnamese writer. Her last name is Thuy, T-H-U-Y, and the novel's called M. And there are, in this novel that's written today, there's scenes of the Vietnam War that so influenced my coming of age and awareness about war. And to read these events as fictionalized events and how they're still absorbed in the memory landscape of people has been a very powerful thing for me, thinking about literature and, and translation. And to translate it and know that you're helping other people to see what needs to be seen. I say there's a million ways to be wrong and no way to be. So we're trying to be the best wrong we can be. <laughs> so please tell us about your translation workflow. Transpose, translate, and transcend. Transpose is just the data dump where I'm reading and typing at the same time. Translating is actually turning it into English language prose. Transcend is where I hope I can take 
a, my English version and turn it into a work worthy of the artistic merit of the original. So structurally, uh, each language has its own uh, intricacies. So from Macedonian to English, structurally, do you find any difficulty, any specific uh, difficulty while doing it? The word order, even though I said that it's lost case, and so like English, it uses word order, because it has a way of marking direct and indirect object on a clitic pronoun, Macedonian actually has much freer word order than English does. And because it's somewhere between a case language and a non-case language, sometimes the syntax, there can be an ambiguity that's a little tricky to untangle. This interesting uh, translation that you did, titled as uh, Freud's Sister, what is it about? So Freud's Sister by Gotze Smilevsky is, um, so of all Freud, Freud was from a large family, and his sister, Adolfina, there's very little known about her. And so Gotze Smilevsky created this fabulous imaginary world of Adolfina Freud. So she's the sister of the famous Sigmund Freud. And Adolfina and two of her other sisters didn't survive the Holocaust. So Freud, people eventually got Sigmund Freud out to England, and he was unable, unable in the novel, unwilling to risk things, and he was too late to get his sisters out, and they died in the camps. And Smilevsky, it's a very feminist novel. It's about the lives of unknown sisters of famous men. One of the other characters in the novel is Klimt, Gustav Klimt's sister, and so it's an exploration of madness, it's an exploration of mental health. It's an exploration of lives caught up in, in the Holocaust. And fame didn't save you. Being an old person didn't save you. And, his, and the two women, Freud's sister and Klimt's sister, end up in a mental institution. And they have this friendship. And... Smilevsky's writing is very intricate and very artistic. And there's a lot of, there's a number of examples of ekphresis where he's describing through Adolfina's eyes a painting. And there's a built-in memory. Some people have said there's a lot of repetition in the novel. There's a lot of repetition in memory. And as Adolfina remembers and calls to mind Sometimes the memory is the same, and sometimes the memory is almost the same. And the way we're working through memory, and we follow Adolfina into this descent into darkness and depression and failed love. And meanwhile, there's the famous Sigmund Freud. So it, it's a, it, I, I loved translating it. It was a wonderful challenge. And Goethe Almost everything I've translated, the, no the novelists have been alive. And so I've been able to have a wonderful exchange with living authors about their work. Now, the other interesting project is uh, 
Baganyo Incredible Tales of Modern Bulgarian. It's a group translation project. So I've had two collaborative projects. Baganyu from Bulgarian and the most recent book that just came out a week ago is The Long Coming of the Fire that I co-translated of the poetry of Atsa Shopov with Raleigh Gra. So I've had these two very different collaborative things. The novel Baganyu by Aleko Konstantinov, any student in North America, actually any student in Bulgaria who studies Bulgarian eventually reads the classic of 19th century tales of a modern Bulgarian. And when I was learning Bulgarian with Victor Friedman, it's the, the early scenes in particular are so funny and ironic, but nobody would translate it because it's very difficult. It's 19th century. It's full of Turkisms. There's a lot of wordplay, archaisms. So we're all reading it, but it doesn't exist in English, but it's an absolute landmark of Bulgarian literary history. Aleko Konstantinov appeared on one of their banknotes. It's a classic work, and we felt it was an important work. So I suggested, look, the novel is about a group of friends who get together and tell stories about Baiganyu. So why don't we put together a group of friends, and we'll all translate different stories, and then we'll get together and we'll read the stories of Baiganyu. And in this way, we'll work on bringing this novel into English. So four of us, me, Victor Friedman, Catherine Rudin, who was a professor of Bulgarian at Wayne State University, and Grace Fielder at the University of Arizona. We all divided up the novel, and then Friedman was able to get grant money to bring us all to Chicago. And for two 16-hour days, we read and critiqued each other's translations. Then we went back to our home institutions, and then we all came back again for two all-night sessions, and then uh, it was very funny. And then working with other people who read and critiqued, then Victor did an overall edit editorial uh, intervention, and he wrote a fabulous introduction and glossary. And the spirit of telling the stories about Baiganyu was built into the actual translation. In fact, uh, today on Amazon, I was checking uh, the... I was just looking at the book, how it is. Even the cover page looked very interesting to me. It's interesting because most Bulgarian images use the old Baiganyu when he's become fat and he's become ugly and he's become very mean. But the young Baiganyu is actually quite dashing. And so we wanted to get the young Baiganyu on the cover <laughs> with his twirled mustache. The novel Fear of the Barbarians. Uh, please tell us about the writer Peter Rendonsky and his works. First, I want to get rid of the. So the title of his novel is Fear of Barbarians. There's a another book called Fear of the Barbarian, which is a obviously more famous novel. So he's Fear of Barbarians. So the this novel is very special to me for 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 um, the fact that. Parthian Books contacted me in August of 2020. So it was during lockdown, where in Toronto, we were really home for the whole year, that I had this gift of this book translation during that period. It was just wonderful company. And the book itself is about isolation. 
So the novel t takes place on the island of Gavdos, which is the southernmost of the Greek islands, south of Crete. And it, it tells in alternating stories the lives of these two women, Oksana and Penelope. Oksana, who is, has come from Ukraine with two other men and they're suffering from radiation poisoning. They were engineers at Chernobyl in Pripyat. And Penelope, whose life became marooned on Gavdos when she was orphaned and married off from a convent in Crete to a shepherd on the island. And so the book sounds very simple. It's alternating stories of two women who find themselves on this remote island, and both of them are housebound. Oksana is housebound because people on the island are, are afraid of the barbarians who've just arrived, possibly carrying radiation poisoning to the island. And Penelope is housebound because her husband is very patriarchal, and she's housebound and manipulated by a very kind of brutish husband. And so she's home with her daughter. So we have two women isolated in their homes. But as they start, each tells a story from the other. Little by little, they're telling about people in their past and people, the true loves of their lives who are from their earlier past. They're telling the lives of what Penelope heard from her husband out in the village. And so the husband in Penelope's recounting is recounting what's happened. Oksana is hearing from Yevgeny and Igor what happened to them during the day. And they're telling her about the people they met and how those people's lives are connected to Gavdos. So we start having this spiraling novel that it's very small, but this inner world of the novel starts circulating out across time and space through the imaginary retelling of the lives of these two women. So it's very kaleidoscopic and beautiful. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all in 90 pages he was able to do all this. I just want to say, and Petar, I described how Gotze Smilevsky's language is very rich, and Lydia Dimkovska, who I translate, is very tricky. She uses very odd images, so you're always wondering, are you? The story, Petar Andonovsky's storytelling is very direct. So his, his sentence structure is simple. And so he's using a very simple narrative structure to tell you this very interwoven history. I read that uh, he's influenced by a poem by poet Kawafi's Waiting for the Barbarians. I think uh, in one of the interviews he said. Now, translation, uh, uh, most of the times it is about choice, right? Choice between various alternatives you have when, it, when you're transporting it from one language to the other language. Uh, either it's choosing between two words or two phrases, etc. Have you had to make any interesting choices uh, during this translation? Did you really struggle and come out with a solution? Any examples can you give? I, I meant to go back and double check this, but I think people will find it interesting because this is a book about people telling stories about people telling stories. And in Macedonian, one of the interesting verb forms that's shared 
by Bulgarian. It's a it's a Balkan feature. A number of Balkan languages do this. Turkish does it. And that is, there's a verb form that can be used to mean that the speaker has chosen, can't confirm the truth value of what they're telling. This verb form also has another, a, a bunch of other meanings, but one of its meanings can mean that the speaker the speaker isn't confirming the truth value of what they're hearing. It's here. It's hearsay. I heard this from someone. So sometimes when I'm translating these stories, I want to insert where I'm pretty sure it's being used of. I can't verify this, but I've heard. I had to insert things like. I was told that the wife probably did this. So I would have to do lexically what was happening grammatically in Macedonian. It's interesting. Now, tell us about uh, the publisher of this book, uh, Parthian's Books. I think uh, they are an independent publisher, indie publisher. They're an independent publisher in Wales. They're a press that I had never worked with before, but they contacted me when Petar won the EU Prize for Literature. And so I got to become acquainted with this very lovely press. They were really lovely to work with. They're, they're in Wales. And one of their main things that they do is they support Welsh writers and they support Welsh writers. But they also have one of their imprints is Kaleidoscope. And in that Kaleidoscope, they, it may be called Carnival. I'd have to look it up. They specifically are bringing two English readers in Wales, work of authors around the world. So it's their translation imprint. And Petar's book appears in that imprint. Oh, what are you currently working on in translation? So I just finished this monumental three-year project of translating 76 poems by one of Macedonia's two most famous poets of the 20th century, Atso Shopov. It's the year of his centennial this year. And his daughter, Yasmina Shopova, contacted me and I contacted Raleigh Graw and we we formed a team to do that. They said that just came out with Deep Vellum Books in Texas. I know you interviewed Will from Deep Vellum. Will published this, absolutely beautiful edition. And then the what's next on my desk are the final I'm going back through the final edits of a novel by Lydia Dimkovska called Grandma. The, te- the working title is Grandma No We, Grandma Yes No, that will come out with Istros Books in English. And then another book that I'm doing with Parthian, uh, another Petr Andonovsky book, I'm doing the final edits on the novel, The Summer Without You or The Summer You Weren't There. So what do you mean when you say final edits? What exactly is final editing? <laughs> when Raleigh and I were translating the poems and it was back and forth and back and forth over the internet, when we had both agreed that this was it, we labeled it the near final because it's not final until it's published. I have translated them. The novels have been accepted. They've been through editing. But then you pick it up again and you go, no, no, this isn't right. I, I need to go back through it. So final editing is I already have, if, if they told me, I'm sorry, it needs to go to press tomorrow, it could go to press tomorrow, but I'm going back through it, just making some final decisions. 
I re I reread Fear of Barbarians last night, and I went, "Oh no, I would have done that differently." <laughs> oh no, not that word. <laughs> See, you don't have that creative freedom to choose whatever you want in translation. You are restricted, right? You're restricted, but you have tremendous creativity inside the box. And so that's why I think trans I'm a translator, not a writer. I love playing with language inside the box somebody else has provided me with. Finally, please read a paragraph uh, from the book uh, in both uh, Macedonian and in English. Uh, this is from the second chapter, Boat of Fear by Penelope. If you hadn't fled the convent that night, we would now most likely be somewhere in Spain or Portugal. That afternoon, when the fishermen tied the rope to the harbor dock, I knew I would always remain here. The day I stepped foot on Gavdos, I promised myself I would never think of you again, and I didn't for ten whole years until today, when the Hollis returned home upset. I saw fear in his face for the first time. He said that since early morning, people had been gathering in the taverna to greet the doctor. While they drank Rocky, the priest asked the doctor what was new over there, gesturing across the sea. He told them the Berlin Wall had fallen, and all of Europe was in a state of anticipation. Everyone was silent. It wasn't clear to anyone how some wall in Europe could have any significance. Here, people live for years forgotten. History persistently passes them by. Even leprosy and hunger had passed them by. And just when they thought it would pass them by again, Spiros flew into the taverna and, according to Michalis, began shouting at full volume, They've arrived! There they are! They're pulling into the harbor! And without asking who they were, everybody set off towards the harbor of Carave. There, in the middle of the calm sea, drawing closer and closer, there, in the shape of a boat, was fear. Okay, let me just make the script a little bigger here. Okay. Chamets nastravot, Penelope. Dane pobegneše ona nok od monastirot, sega sigurno ke bef meneka de vošpani ili vo Portugalia. Ona popladne koga ribarot go vrza jažato na pristaništeto, znajev teka za sekogaš ki ostanam tuka. Denta koga stapnaf na gavdos, Si vetiv teka nikogaš povekje nema da pomislam na tebe. In ne pomisliv celi deset godini, do denes, koga Mihali se vrati voznemiren doma. Prv pad vidov straf na negovato lice. Ušte rano utrovo go se sobralo vo tavernata, zada go prečeka doktorot. Do deka pijele rakija, popot go prašal, što ima novo od drugata strana, pokaživajki so rakata preko moreto. Doktorot im rekol, deka padnal berlinski od zid, deka cela Evropa evo izčakuvanje. Site molčele, nikomu ne mu bile jasno kakvo značenje bi imal eden zid za Evropa. Tuka lugjeto so godini živejat zaboraveni, Istorijeto uporno gi odminuva, gi odminale i leprate i gladot, i taman koga pomislile dek i ovoj pat ke go odmine, 
od taverna vletal smirov i na sijel glas počnal da viga. Tija dojdova, enegi, se približuva kon pristaništato i bez da prašat koji se tije, sita se ju patila kon pristaništato vo karave. I togaš od srede mirnoto more vo oblik na čamec, do ni vse poveke se približuval stravot. Od čametot izlegla trojca lugja. Sounded like Russian to me, actually. If Russian, there are some common words that the sound system is actually very different. Russian would say nje, where they go ne. So there's no palatalization in Macedonian. So it's a little more percussive sounding is what I'd say. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Christina, for uh, this talk. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.